So Genesis chapter 40, we've been going through the life of Joseph. And last week, or no, week before last, week before last, when we were in chapter 39, we saw the whole problem of the false accusal of uh, Potiphar's wife as she accused him of trying to rape her, which was not even close to true. It's quite the opposite. She was constantly harassing him and trying to lure him into a relationship that he constantly told her was wrong, and he took every precaution not to uh, be in a situation that was questionable, and he told her over and over again, listen, your husband trusts me, and I appreciate that trust, and this is not happening. So she falsely accuses him. He ends up in prison, and that's where we find him still in chapter 40. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we go there, actually, I told you to go to Genesis 40, but I'm going to put up here on the screen, you can read it there with me, James chapter 1, 2 to 4. This passage is one that is both encouraging and challenging, and, and maybe even sometimes, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe disappointing. I don't know. It depends on how you look at it. James wrote, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's, that's, that's a paradox if there is one. Why would I face, trial, or face trials and be happy about it? Why would I find joy in that? Why would that be a good thing? Generally, we consider trials and temptations, and, and the Greek word for trials and temptations is often the same word, so kind of both lumped in there together. Why would we look at that as something good? He tells us, actually. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Say, okay, so the good thing, the exciting thing about facing trials is that later I'll be able to face more trials. That's what perseverance is, right? Well, that sounds kind of, that can sound good, that too. It, depending on how it strikes you, is either that's a good thing because you know they're coming anyway. You might as well be better prepared, right? That's the positive. The other side of that is, what do you know is coming? Oh, man. So build those muscles. The only way to build them is to, is to go through trials. Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work. So it's, it, there's a purpose to it, right? It's not just life is hard, deal with it. That's not what James is saying. And it's not just life is hard and it gets easier, deal with it. Because he didn't say that either. He says life is hard. Satan will throw things at you. Life will throw things at you. Sometimes your own mistakes will throw things at you, but he doesn't say that. But... God actually strengthens you in the process, gives you more perseverance in the process, makes, it, uh, makes you better equipped to handle what comes next in the process. But even that has a purpose. There's something bigger at play. Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, if you want to grow up in Christ, if you look at somebody that you've admired for their faith in your life, might be a grandfather, grandmother, neighbor, friend, and you look at them and you say, man, they have handled so much and they've done it so much better than I have. Here's their secret right here. Here's what got them to where they are. And here's what gets you there too. And there are no shortcuts. There's no pill. There's no magic formula. It's just hang on to your faith. Learn from every experience you go through and let God use your circumstances not as a reason to whine, not as a reason to pout, but as a reason to grow and as a catalyst for you to be even stronger. Right? Nobody becomes a bodybuilder by lifting feathers and nobody becomes a strong Christian by an easy life. That's what James is trying to get us to see. Everything that comes at you 
It may not be that God said, I think they should have this and that will make them stronger. But everything that comes at you, God does look at and says, I think even though Satan meant this for harm, I can turn this for good. And I'm quoting Joseph here when I say that. He's going to say that uh, later on here in a week or two. So this is, this is kind of the, the overarching theme, just put another way, of Joseph's life story. What impresses me about him is the way that he remained faithful. And I mentioned that before, that he remained faithful even though it's just bam, 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 just another trial and another trial and another trial, another mistreatment. And that impresses me. It impresses me that we never see him whine. And he's not immune to pain, but it's, it's not something that, that embitters him. So let's read this, chapter 40, and then we'll jump into this part here. Starting in verse 1. Let's be from the, the NIV. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. By the way, you think that's coincidental or divine appointment? What do you think? The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph. You think that's coincidental? Maybe, maybe not. And he attended them. And after they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker and the candlestick maker, I hear it every time I read this. Every time I have to stop, I might as well tell you, if I pause, that's why. Every time I pause there, it's inside my head. I'm going, don't say it. Don't say it. They just, I keep hearing the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. And that's a whole different story with different problems. Anyway, so the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were being held in prison had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. And when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, let me tell you this, by the way, David Sherrill's brother Paul likes to say that he has the gift of the interpretation of dreams. I won't tell you what it is, but he has one interpretation for every dream he's ever told. And he, 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 he admits that. So never go to a Cheryl for dream interpretation. This is what I'm telling you. It would be more fun if David was still sitting there. But just don't do it because I'll tell you what they would say some other time. So they say, we don't have anybody. So Joseph says, verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in the dungeon. So he gets his interpretation. The cupbearer hears that, you know, three more days is all you've got left in here. You're going to go back, you're going to be restored, and you're going to have your old job, and it's going to be great. So he's thinking, man, I like this. This is wonderful. And the baker, you can just imagine, he's sitting over there listening to this dream, and it says, when the chief baker saw that Joseph had been given a favorable interpretation, he says to Joseph, 
I too had a dream. And I bet he didn't say it like that. I too had a dream. He probably said, oh, this is getting good. I bet mine's just as good. I had a dream too. Can you tell me what mine means? Here's the difference. On my head, there were three baskets of bread. Verse 17. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. He's probably sitting on pins and needles, right? Within three days... Pharaoh will lift off your head and impel your body on a pole. Well, wait a minute. You're the baker. I do wonder the look on his face. You know, the other one sounded so great. You know, oh, it's three days and you're going to be restored. You're going to squeeze the grapes just like you used to. Put it in this cup just like you used to. It's all going to be good. You're going to be able to go home. And this guy, he's going to lift off your head and impel you on a pole. It's like he went to a shero for his dream interpretation. You know, just... And the look on his face, I, I really do. I wonder... and. I don't know, that'd be a little bit rough. So, this is what he says, the birds are going to eat away your flesh, verse 20. So on the third day of Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. And if he did that first, you know the baker is already going, oh no, he was right. Oh no. And he was. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them or said to them in his interpretation. But look at verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So we have false imprisonment, false accusation, his whole life taken away from him. Now he's in prison. It looks like God has made sort of one of these not a coincidence, but divine appointments to where these people are put here. Dream is put there, an interpretation given to Joseph by God, but we know that's how Joseph did this and how he says he did this. An interpretation from God for this. Joseph takes an opportunity to say, hey, when you get out, please don't forget me. I don't belong here. I didn't do anything wrong before I got here. I didn't do anything wrong here. And it's wrong that I'm here. Don't forget me here. And yet he goes off and he forgets. That seems really horrible. You know, it's one thing to be a little bit forgetful, like you forget the milk or you forget the eggs or something like that, or maybe even a bigger thing, like you forget a particular appointment, which is embarrassing. But to forget somebody who's falsely imprisoned, but who gave you hope when you needed it most and was right about that hope, that's pretty bad. But that's what happens. And this guy leaves him stuck. And it still doesn't rock Joseph off of his faithfulness to God. That impresses me. But what impresses me most is, this is just Joseph. Joseph is a brother of ours in the faith. He's not Superman. He's not Jesus. He has the same weaknesses. Of course, so did Jesus undergo the same trials and the same temptations. But he's as flawed as we are. And yet he did not let his faith become destroyed over all of this. We can't reiterate that enough because I believe that's why God wants us to understand this story. Because I think that we're supposed to see that Joseph was not superhero. Hero, yes, but not superhero. Because his strengths were strengths that are available to us in our faith, in our relationship with God right here and right now. So we're going to look at a little bit more. We've looked at some of the, the background here of how does that happen when you're falsely accused and when circumstances aren't what they were supposed to be and it's there because of other people's doing wrong and dishonesty in his case. And we've all either been there or at some point in our life will be there. 
Yeah, I think this happens to everybody some way or another. may not be as drastic as his was, hopefully not. But, you know, if you work with people, you're going to have somebody lie about you and, and pull stunts. Uh, hopefully just not with the level of consequences as his, but it's still, you're going to feel just as burned. Your heart's going to be just as hurt by it when it happens. One of the things is this. His faithfulness was not about the absence of pain. Okay? We've talked before about his, his faith wasn't circumstantial. It didn't depend on, I believe in God when things are going right, but I doubt God when things are going wrong. His faith wasn't circumstantial like that, and I would argue that's not faith. That's just, I like you when you're nice to me. I don't like you when I think you're not being nice. That's, that's being fickle. That's not being faithful. But his was also not rooted in the idea that, that nothing bad happens to me and I don't hurt or I can withstand anything that Satan throws at me. The truth is we cannot of our own withstand everything Satan would throw at us. There are things he will do in our life that on our own, without Jesus, without God, we cannot handle. We will break. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there, you've done that, you've felt that, and, and you've had to turn back to God to know that there was even a way out at all. You know that. It's, also, it's more about the absence of bitterness. Joseph's story may not be quite as drastic as Job's because Joseph doesn't have children that he's lost, and Job does. And that's got to be extremely difficult to lose several children in one horrible, tragic accident. We know Satan was behind that. It's not really an accident. But bitterness never overtakes him. He never is tempted like Job's wife to just curse God and die. Or at least he never gives in to such a temptation. It never becomes his dominant feeling and his dominant view of the world around him. He never gives in to bitterness. That one thing is huge. Because it is so easy for us to sit and like a cow chewing a cud, just chew and chew and chew on what hasn't gone right in our life. So-and-so said this, and that made me mad. And we just chew on it. And then we swallow it, and we think, well, maybe I'm going to try and get over that. Now we burp it back up just like a cow, and we start chewing it on, on it all over again. And I guarantee you that grass doesn't taste any better the third time they're chewing on it. And neither do the things that we get angry and upset and bitter over. There's a reason no one ever says, you know who I like to be around? I love to be around people who are really bitter and angry. I just love to hear them whine. I love to hear them gripe. I love to hear about things that happened 30 years ago that they're still not over. And there's, you know, did you know there's a whole section of those cards over at the Hallmark section? Cards written by bitter people for bitter people. No, there's not. Because you couldn't pay people five. Have Hallmark cards gone expensive or what? You couldn't pay people $5 to carry that card and read that thing. Can you imagine what that would look like? Nasty old thing. They probably blow their nose in it before they send it. Just awful. Nobody wants to be around that. And nobody ought to want to become that. But the truth is, it's easier for us to do than we realize. And often we're there before we realize it. Usually somebody tries to tell us, and because we're so angry, we don't listen to them. It's really hard to see ourselves. If you're not sure if that's where you are, ask somebody. Ask somebody who lives with you or has to work with you. Do you think I'm bitter? And if they do something like, you really want me to answer that? You got your answer. Okay, You have got your answer. And it's a resounding yes. They're just afraid to say it because they know what you do to people you're bitter toward, right? So just you understand. If they plaster on a big fake cheesy grin, you're like, no, I think you're great. No, 
No, you have been chewing the cud of bitterness, haven't you? Nasty old nettly stuff all up in your heartburn and nasty. If you're taking six different heartburn pills, that might be, you know, every now and then. That's, that's more about our spiritual health than our physical. You might ask, say, hey, do you think that I am? Because it's, it's hard for us to see in ourselves. Joseph doesn't. He doesn't have, we never see him like this. There are indications in his life that the pain really hurt. I think his request to the cupbearer that he be remembered is not just a friendly request. I think that's, that's a cry for help. Hey, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't know what God's plan is, but I can tell you I'm tired of being stuck in this. And I don't belong here. Not out of bitterness, but out of a normal human desire for things to be set right, for a little bit of, of justice to happen and... and and God to set things back to the way that they ought to be, that's all right. But we all know the difference, right, between that and bitterness. And we don't have to even explain it. We know the difference between the way the two things sound. So how did he keep from that? Because I don't think that's just automatic. Because it is easier for us to get embittered than we might think. It is easier for us to keep digging up anger uh, and, and chewing back over it again. And you know, how, do we, how do we guard against that? And one is you, you have to first either through your own self-recognition or getting somebody else to tell you. You've got to know that it's there. You've got to start realizing, you know, when I, th- I think when I feel like this, that's what I'm doing. I think when everything's negative or when I'm always irritable, maybe this, is, maybe this is where I am. Maybe this is what I'm doing. Maybe I'm angry about something. And you probably know what it is. But, and it may be multiple things. But part of the, the deal is going to be to realize, and this is affecting other people. Maybe the reason people are angry at me is because I was angry first. Maybe it's because I was bitter. Maybe, I, maybe I'm always sharp. Or maybe I'm always this. And look at it that way. I think part of Joseph's thing was it wasn't always about just him. He saw that you know, maybe God has put me here for a reason. Early on, when we're tempted to be embittered by, our, embittered by our circumstance, we need to ask ourselves, could it be that God is trying to work through this? I probably mentioned before because I'm impressed by it. A friend of mine, his, his wife's family, cancer just runs in that family. Like crazy. I mean, we're talking, they don't just have like a growth. Every woman in the family has probably had at least 30 growths removed over, you know, over 30 years and sometimes multiple within a year. I mean, really, really crazy high levels of cancer within their family. Uh, my friend's mother had had just bout after bout after bout. And she came to see, rather, and she was never embittered, she came to see her cancer as an opportunity. And so she would, when she went into the hospital and knew she was going to be there for quite a while, she would, first thing she'd do, sign up for the cancer support group. And it wasn't even for her own support. She wanted to go and encourage people who were there for the first time. Hey, this is my fifth, my sixth, my seventh, my eighth. God can get you through. You're going to be all right. And, and even if, kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and even if the Lord doesn't deliver us from this, we know that God's going to raise us and we're going to be right with God. And God's going to get us through this one way or the other. And she just had this, this overbearingly positive attitude. No matter how, how much deeper the cancer was that time, no matter how much more serious it was that time, just a, a living example of faith over bitterness. I think it would be easy your sixth time in the cancer ward to be pretty bitter. I think it would be really easy to succumb to it. And yet she never did. And because she never did, her kids never do. They face it with faith and they face it with confidence and they face it looking for if this is where I've got to be, if this is what's going to happen, 
how can God use me here? Because it's not all just about me. I think that mindset alone, it's not just all about me, can be transformative in our own character, in our own heart, and the way that we react to the things that we're dealing with. We often ask that question, don't we? Well, why me, Lord? Why do I have to go through? Why do I have to deal? Why do I, why do I, why do I? What do all those things have in common? Self. And I get it, okay? And my, my dad had a, a, a Christmas ornament on our tree every year. It was a little blue glass globe, you know, the traditional 1970s blue glass ornament with a, picture, with a school picture of me in kindergarten or first grade because he said that that look on my face was, why me? Like, why am I having to get this picture taken? You know, and so every there was the why me Lord ornament on the tree. So I get the question. There are all kinds of things that make us ask ourselves and ask God, you know, why am I having to go through this? But we need to ask every now and then, God, is there somebody else this is about? Because in Joseph's case, there was in the chapter we just read in Genesis 40. He is focused not on himself alone. He does take the opportunity to say, hey, remember me. But he's also focused on, well, hey, how can I help you? We know that interpretation of dreams, they belong to God. Tell me your dream. He could have told him just, hey, I don't like being here and I don't like being with you. Shut up. Talk about your dreams somewhere else. That's what a bitter person says, isn't it? Instead, he said, you know what? Sometimes these things are about God. Why don't you tell me your dream and let's see if there's something there. Could you do that in a cancer ward? Could you do that in a waiting room? Could you do that at a job you're frustrated with? Could you listen to a co-worker, listen to a co-patient, listen to a neighbor and say, you know, I don't like that either. I don't like that we're here either. But why should why don't we talk sometime? Some of the maybe there's something that God might show both of us in all of this. And he did that. Just made the most of every opportunity and and didn't become embittered, but saw even in those things an opportunity to serve the Lord and became prison minister of sorts. Another thing that I think is interesting about him that is different sometimes for us is his faith was not hidden. It wasn't hidden. He didn't see where he was as any kind of a hindrance to say, yes, I believe in God, and I believe God, in this case, God interprets these dreams, and there's a meaning to that and a meaning to our circumstance. And I believe he's working maybe even through our meeting each other. And so you remember me when you go out, and maybe this is the way God's going to work this out. None of it was hidden. He was open about it. Even though, had, one could argue, where it had gotten him. Being a good man of integrity and strength and faith had gotten him in a pit. It had gotten him in a, <laughs> in a prison. It's on how you look at it. Did it get him into the pit? Did it get him into the prison? Or were those the decisions of evil people twice trying to do him harm? And his decision two times was to be faithful and trust the Lord. And God blessed him two times that even in prison, he was, he was getting promotions. That can happen. I know a guy who went into prison... As far as I know, I'm not God, I don't know all the circumstances. As far as I know, his circumstance, not that different from Joseph's, a false accusal that landed him in prison because of circumstantial evidence at a time when they couldn't prove all the things they can prove now. Okay? And he ends up in prison. So what does he do? Same thing as, as Joseph. He decides, I'm going to prove my character by the way I live here. That's got to be pretty tough, I would think, in a prison. But that's what he did. And he started working together with the chaplain. He eventually becomes sort of a, a chaplain's assistant within the prison and worked with him after he was out of prison because it was an opportunity to serve the Lord. If i got to be here, is there at least something God can do with this that can make it worthwhile? I mean, that's a good question to ask. 
is there something God can do with where, what I'm going through that will make it worthwhile? Because if it's not all about me, maybe it's about how I can minister to somebody else later with what I've learned. Maybe there's something God wants me to catch that I can strengthen somebody else down the road with what I learned in this trial and in this temptation. But he didn't hide his faith. He didn't, he didn't pretend he wasn't a, a, a faithful believer in God. And as a result, we know from chapter 39 into 40, he constantly earned their respect and earned their trust and was able to get more privileges and everything else because of a godly character. So that was just a constant good thing. And he gave glory to God when, it, when that was what it was about. Notice he didn't say, I interpret dreams. He said, interpretations belong to God. That was his way of saying, you know, it's not me anything special, but God does sometimes reveal some things, and I'd be glad to share you what he has to say and kind of pulls himself out of the center of that situation, which also helps fight bitterness because bitterness is born of us being at the center of everything. Uh, when there was a problem... They knew he was a man they could go to. He had that reputation not only among the prisoners, like with the cupbearer and the baker. He had that reputation among the guards. Chapter 41, which we'll look at next time, starts right there. He's in prison for two more years because of the thoughtlessness of this cupbearer. And yet all through those two years, even though the cupbearer's forgotten, and he could be very uh, bitter about that too, he just keeps staying a man of God. And so when they say, hey, we need somebody to interpret this dream. Where do they go? Joseph. He remembers and says, oh, I was supposed to mention this guy to you a couple of years ago. We've all had those moments, but hopefully not this bad as far as other people are affected. But he says, I remember this guy. Why? Because that was the impression he had because of his character and because of his faith and, and because he really did consider other people. Let me see if I can get that to go. I am stuck. Can you click that one, Jesse? It won't go. Thank you. Go ahead and click the next one too, and then I just won't have to worry about it at all. Um, we had that saying about, you know, when one door closes, another one opens. Sometimes doors close because the devil slams them shut. And guess what? God, that doesn't stop God at all, does it? We know the passage in Romans chapter 8 about God working everything together for the good of those who love the Lord and have been called according to His purpose. Now, it doesn't say everything just works out. What it says is God works things out for those. It doesn't say every circumstance was the way God wanted it to be, that God knitted this circumstance again. He was hoping that you would go through difficulty so that you would learn something. It says that even when those circumstances come, God can work them out. There's a big fundamental difference between those two things. God is not the one who is tempting you. God is often not the one who is trying you. That is Satan. But God can still work that out and does. And his way came because God was faithful to him. And he was faithful to serve the Lord. I think those two things dovetail. God was faithful to him, but if he hadn't said, okay then, God, use me here. We know what God does. It's what uh, Mordecai said to Esther. How do you know that God didn't bring you to the, this very place for this very purpose? And guess what? Esther's purpose was not about her either, was it? It was all about other people. So, he, Mordecai says to her, how do you know but that God didn't bring you here for this very purpose? But then he goes on. He says, but if you don't do anything, God will get somebody else. There's almost an implied. He doesn't say it. Actually, he doesn't say God because oddly enough, Esther never uses the word God. It's kind of a weird thing. But he says, someone else will be raised up. It's just kind of always this implied. Someone else will be raised up. to. Do. And there's an implied, you won't know the blessing of God 
because you denied the service of God. Joseph eventually finds his way out of prison because he said yes when God called him to service for other people. The cupbearer, the baker, and the next chapter, Pharaoh himself. And if he had been embittered and said, God, you hadn't done anything for me, I'm not doing anything for these people, you think he would have gotten out of that prison? Because his way out was to help. His way out was to serve. His way out was by taking his focus off himself and putting it on opportunities God was putting before him for the sake of other people. How many times do you think we've missed a way forward in a circumstance because God was trying to show us the way through service rather than just a get-out-of-jail-free card? And we said no. Or we said, and I hear this all the time, when I'm better, when I feel different, when I'm not dealing with this, when so-and-so starts treating me better, I'll start serving. What if that was the way God wanted you to get to your better was through that service? And that was you saying no to the cupbearer, no to the baker, no to Pharaoh. And so you're going to stay forgotten in your prison. It was Joseph's lack of that kind of selfish spirit that enabled him to see these opportunities each time God put them before him. And God worked through each one of those to get him where he needed to be. He would turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll close with this passage. Ephesians 5, verse 15 to 17. If you're using the app, this one's not in there because I added it after I did that. <clears throat> I think it sums up well the encouragement we can get from Joseph's story in Genesis 40. Paul writes, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You see, he doesn't say be wise when things are good. He says be wise because you know they're not always right. They're not always good. They're not always what they ought to be. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. When we take our eyes off ourselves and say, God, what... What's the interpretation? What do you want to interpret from these circumstances? What do you want me to see? Whom do you want me to serve so that we can go forward? Then be prepared to say yes. Make the most of every opportunity God gives you. Because that may be, it may be through service to somebody else, somebody else, that God is actually trying to provide the greatest blessing into your life. Ask anybody who spends a lot of time volunteering and a lot of time going and and serving other people when they're in desperate situations. You know what you find? They find that far more fulfilling than Eagles versus the Patriots. That's not fulfilling. There were no Cowboys involved, right? So they'll find it much more fulfilling than tickets to a game, than a trophy on a shelf. They'll look back immediately to things where they saw somebody's life change because they said yes to serving somebody. And they're remembering back to a time when God moved them forward through service. Let's pray together.